I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of all goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you this morning for this portion of your inspired word. We thank you for this word that confronts us where we are with the gospel of God and with the mission of God. I pray this morning that you would speak for your servants are listening. Amen. Well, we've been in the book of Romans for, I think, the better part of a year now. Um, and if you know anything about the book of Romans, um, or simply if you just came to, to hear a Christian sermon, you probably be, uh, were expecting to be hit with Christian doctrine, particularly knowing that we're preaching on the book of Romans. But this morning we come to the beginning of the end of the book of Romans, and Paul's focus sort of decisively shifts, um, and he begins to speak about travel plans. Um, and if you're wondering what we're going to preach on this morning, I'd encourage you to uh, look ahead to the next chapter, which is full of greetings, and wonder what we're going to preach on next week. 
but it's true. We expect from the book of Romans rich doctrine, the great truths of the Christian faith. And I think almost no, none of those great doctrines are left out in Paul's exposition of the faith in the book of Romans. But this morning we come to something entirely different and might be puzzled as to what is going on here. This passage covers a lot of territory. I, uh, I titled this sermon all over the map so that when you go home today and you're di discussing the sermon with your spouse or, or something, one of you might be inclined to say, well, the sermon was kind of all over the map. And you'd be right. <laughs> so just hedging my bets a little bit here as we cover a lot of ground. Well, the 2001 World Series was played from October 27th to November 4th between the New York Yankees and the Arizona Diamondbacks, just seven weeks after the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Three of those games were played in the Bronx. It was a memorable series. The New York Yankees were playing in the series for their fourth straight year, making them the first team in 40 years to play in the World Series that many times in a row. The team to do it 40 years prior, the Yankees. If they won in 2001, uh, they would be the first team in over 50 years to win four or more World Series in a row. The team to do it 50 years earlier, the New York Yankees. Growing up in Connecticut and with family from upstate New York, uh, it was just part of life that we rooted for the Yankees. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, Jorge Posada in, in, the er, in the early 2000s, Bernie Williams, Andy Pettit, and of course, Derek Jeter, who hit the famous walk-off home run in game four of 2001 to tie the series. These were my heroes as a kid. These were my heroes. I was an aspiring young baseball player in 2001, and the Yankees were sort of my life. The series of 2001 ignited in me a passion for the game and even for studying its history that I carried with me at least through my teenage years. I, uh, it's beginning to fade a bit. <laughs> but I was caught up in 2001 in a vision of the glory of the great game of baseball, a vision of the glory of what baseball could be. Fast forward to today, and I, like many parents in the room, have a deep down desire to live vicariously through my children's athletic success. At this stage in the game, my son is four years old, and um, so I, you know, I've, I've tried the, the, the normal things. I've tried to teach him how to hold a bat, how to stand at the plate. I've tried to encourage him to practice with me, and uh, it's been pretty much an uphill battle to this point. He, he hasn't had the, the love of the game yet, and that, that's right, that's step number one. You have to instill a desire to play in the first place. So these basic training exercises having failed, I you know, wasn't thinking much about it when in, over the past couple weeks, my wife and I jumped on the Atlanta Braves bandwagon and we rooted for them through the World Series. And, and Miles, our son, knew that we were watching the series as he went to bed because the games were ridiculously late. And he wanted to know about baseball. He, he, a couple times, he, he opened his door after going to bed, which is not something he normally he does, just to peek out and, and watch the game. And recently, over the past few days, he's wanted to play baseball. The vicarious living has begun. 
And what's my point? My point is, is that it is a vision of the glory of something that draws us into it. We have to be caught up in a vision of what something can be in order to give ourselves to it. As we read Romans 15, the the last half of it, uh, and some of you may have experienced this as we read it, you know, you might go, what does this have to do with the great doctrines of the Christian faith? And yet, I suggest to you this morning that what permeates and what underlies these travel plans, these details of the Apostle Paul's life is a great vision of the mission of God, what God is up to in the world and how he's accomplishing his mission. What is the great vision that motivates and sustains you this morning? In this passage, we primarily see these two things that I just mentioned. We see the mission of God, what is God up to in the world, and we see the means of God, how he is accomplishing his mission in the world. So I wanna tackle those two things this morning through Romans 15. First of all, the mission of God, what is, The mission of God. Well, there's a couple places where it's clear. In verse 16, Paul says, grace was given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles or or simply the nations may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Acceptable and sanctified. Simply put, the mission of God is to make us his, that we would belong to him, and this is the key to what he needs to do to make us his. He needs to make us acceptable and holy. Acceptable and holy. The word acceptable simply means worthy of belonging to God, and the idea of being holy means living like you belong to God, worthy of belonging to God and living like you belong to God. That's the mission of God. And what this looks like as we become God's people, as we belong to him, are made acceptable and holy in his sight, is that we become obedient. In verse 18, Paul says, speaking of his ministry again, that I will not dare to speak of anything that Christ did not accomplish through me for the, literally for the obedience of the Gentiles. This is bringing the book of Romans full circle in many ways because in chapter one, verse five, early on in the letter, he said, speaking of his ministry, that through God, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations to be acceptable and holy, to belong to God, is to become obedient. This is that for which we were made and that for which God desires us to conform in the new creation, that we would be obedient to his will. And underlying this is uh, the dark side uh, or the, the, the negative side of the gospel that apart from the mission of God, God seeking us out, that we are by nature disobedient, even the best of us. All are disobedient, and God's mission is to make us his, that we would obey his will, that we would be conformed to him. Being acceptable, we would be holy, we would be obedient. Another key here is that 
being obedient, belonging to God, is that we worship the name of Jesus. In 1520, Paul says that he wants to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. And this idea of Christ being named is a way that the Bible talks about worshiping God, calling on the name of the Lord. In Romans 10, 13, Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, this is the mission of God, simply put, to make us his, acceptable and holy, obedient and worshiping the Son. If you are in Christ this morning, it is not optional that you participate in the mission of God. You have been its target, and now you are on that mission too. The Christian faith is a missionary faith. By nature, it sort of desires to reach out, to find more targets. This does not mean that only some Christians are called to go out on mission or that this passage is only talking about the task that some have of, of leaving home and going on mission, but that underlying those specific callings is the general calling which we all have to be on mission with the God to whom we belong. This is the mission of God. And so we ought to ask, as we transition to our second point, how is God accomplishing this mission? What is, or what are the means that God uses to accomplish his mission? And in this passage, uh, there are a few different uh, implications of, of how the mission goes forward, but there's really one thing that is mentioned over and over again three times in this passage that is the central means of God's mission, and that is the gospel. The good news, the gospel is God's means of making us acceptable and holy. In 1518, this struck me, as I hope it strikes you this morning. Paul, speaking of his ministry, says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. He talks about being a minister in the priestly service of the gospel of God. He talks about his ambition to preach the gospel of God. He talks about fulfilling the ministry of the gospel of God. These are all uh, actions where, of which he is the subject. But in verse 18, he says, These are, this is what Christ has accomplished through me. That in the preaching of the gospel, God himself is at work. God is on mission. God is the one, even this morning, as we hear God's word, who confronts us. Elsewhere, Paul said that the gospel he received is not man's gospel. A man-made gospel would be a shaky foundation, but what he says here is that the gospel is from God and that God himself in the Son, through the Spirit, confronts us when we hear it. And there are three implications about the gospel that we'll cover very briefly about the means of God accomplishing his his mission. That the gospel must remain central, that the gospel must be proclaimed, and that the gospel must be embodied. Centrality, proclamation, and embodiment. First of all, the gospel must remain central. Again, 
the book of Romans uh, covers a lot of territory and it, it touches on virtually every great doctrine of the Christian faith. And then we come here and Paul brings us back to where he began. In chapter 1, verse 16, when he was talking about his ministry at the beginning of the letter, he said, and this is really, the, I think, the thesis statement for the whole book of Romans. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he covers a lot of territory in chapters 1 through 11. And then in chapters 12 through 15, he touches on a lot of implications of the gospel, how we're to live it out. And it's easy for us to sort of lose the forest for the trees, to get lost in the specifics of the things Paul touches on in, in the book of Romans. But here he brings us back to center. And he says somewhat comically here that the whole book of Romans he wrote as a, as a bold reminder. I don't know which of you can claim this morning if you sat down today and read the book of Romans that this was all just, just a reminder. There's a lot of stuff in here. But what it all points to is the centrality of the gospel. That's what Paul comes back to. And friends, that is what we, as those who belong to God, must always come back to. In verse 20, he says that it is the foundation of the faith. And if you've been in church for a long time or a little, I'm sure you've already seen that it's possible, you've already experienced in your own heart that it is possible to depart from the centrality of the gospel. I think that this is sort of built into us because of our experience. We're used to news becoming old. We're used to the shock and the, the interestingness or whatever, for good or bad, of news growing old. Occasionally things happen that are newsworthy that cause real change in the world, but almost never do we encounter news that, that changes fundamentally what we think about and what we love. We're used to news growing old, and so we look elsewhere. We depart from the centrality of the gospel. And friends, this morning, we need to be reminded that the gospel is the foundation of all that we do. And importantly, it's not because, you know, foundations, uh, hopefully, the foundation of your house is not something that you think about very often. Foundations aren't exactly pretty. But Paul also says here that the gospel is the means God is using to make us holy. So the gospel is not just the foundation. You might say it's the fuel or the force of the Christian life that keeps us going, that sustains us. You never graduate from the gospel. It is the foundation and the fuel of all of the Christian life. And in all of the things we discuss, of all the ministry things that we do as a church, they must always stem from the gospel like fruit from a nourishing root. So that's the centrality of the gospel. The gospel never grows old. It is news that never grows old. And secondly, it's news that must always be shared. The gospel, by its very nature, needs to be proclaimed. The gospel is shocking news. It is counterintuitive news. So Paul speaks of his desire, his travel plans here, 
in verses 19 to 21, he says, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, which is like the northwestern portion of Asia Minor, the farthest places that Paul had traveled in his missionary work, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition, he's saying now I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will believe, and those who have never heard will understand. The gospel is news that has to be shared. It has to go out. People aren't going to find their way to this news. It's not something we're used to. It is counterintuitive. And so the gospel must be proclaimed. There is a deep sense in the Christian, in those who are encountered by the grace of God in the gospel, of belonging to God because of the work of Christ being made acceptable and holy, that to not share that news would be disobedience of the worst sort. Why? Because to hold back this news would be like withholding medicine from the sick when you have it in your hand. Sometimes we hold it back because we think that the person isn't going to like the medicine. It's going to be bitter. It's, they're not going to want to take it. Sometimes the medicine is a little bit painful and there's a, there's a wrestling with it at first. I'm sure that's true of for many of you and your experience of coming to Christ. But the gospel has to be shared. God has given us the medicine. We have to share it. And we have to share it with everyone. We cannot put limits on who needs the gospel and who could receive the gospel. God himself is at work through the gospel, so God himself can make someone open to the gospel and open their heart to faith. So we have to proclaim it. The gospel must be proclaimed. Finally, the gospel must be embodied. And this is really that whole second half of the passage where Paul talks about going to Jerusalem. Uh, he talks about his desire to go to Rome after going to Jerusalem so that he can get to Spain. That's his desire to proclaim the gospel. But then he says, but first I am going to Jerusalem. And what I'm doing is I'm bringing an offering. I'm bringing money for the saints, the Christians in Jerusalem. Um, we're used to, you know, reading Paul's letters, but this is an aspect of Paul's ministry that is often overlooked. Basically, in Paul's missionary travels, he took three journeys that you can read about in the book of Acts. And on his third journey, he primarily visited churches that he had already planted and one of his main goals was to collect an offering for the church in Jerusalem, which from all that we can tell was experiencing a famine with the rest of that region. But Paul saw this as a strategic and important work of gospel ministry, of bringing the mission of God into the lives of people and of embodying it. So in gospel proclamation, we sort of have gospel telling. In gospel embodiment, we sort of have gospel showing. Now, why was this offering such a strategic form of embodying the gospel? Well, because this offering is a tangible expression 
of the oneness that we all have in Christ if we belong to him. There's a oneness of sinfulness, having all acknowledged that none of us is more deserving than another of this grace in which we now stand. And there is a oneness of righteousness, that we all have an equal status before God, that he doesn't lavish on some of us a higher status than others, but that the righteousness of Christ is the same for each one of us if we put our faith in him. So there is a gospel oneness that we have with brothers and sisters around the world. And to give ourselves to brothers and sisters around the world is just, again, a natural outworking of standing in the gospel, of belonging to God. The gospel must be embodied. And the collection for the saints is a strategic way to do it. It's a way of showing what Paul, he literally calls it a fellowship. That we are equal in guilt before God, but equal in righteousness because of Christ. And now I've just skipped over a few other ways that the gospel can be embodied that Paul mentions in this passage. He also mentions the ministry of hospitality. He mentions the ministry of logistical support and administration as the Roman church would help Paul on his way to Spain. He probably would have needed a boat to do that and some travel guides. I'm skipping over the ministry of hospitality and refreshment, uh, the ministry of prayer. There are many ways that we can and must embody the gospel of God, but the question before us all this morning is not so much while it is, which of these should we consider? Which, which of these should, should we be giving ourselves to? But more than that, it's the question, have we, have you been caught up in the vision of the mission of God? The vision that Paul was caught up in. The vision that the early Christians were caught up in, which led them to lay down their lives for the gospel, literally. As a young kid, I was caught up in a vision of the glory of baseball. I still love baseball. But as a teenager, I left that vision for a far greater glory that captured my heart, a far deeper love that compelled me, which is really good because I was never getting to the Yankees. <laughs> But have you been caught up in the mission of God? Are you living in it? Are you walking in it? Is your deep down desire to proclaim it and to embody it? And what might God be calling you this morning to do in response to that call, in response to his mission as those who participate in his work in the world? Friends, let's ask God for help to guide us and how to proclaim and embody the gospel and how to keep it central in all that we do. Let's pray. Father, this morning we give you thanks that you have given us news that does not grow old. That by the work of your son, you have made us acceptable and holy. You are making us holy. You are making us more and more by your spirit in our hearts, obedient to your will. So would you help us 
God, to see all the ways in which we can be obedient now in, at this particular place and time to proclaim and to embody the gospel. We thank you that you yourself speak in your word, that you yourself speak through the gospel, that it is more than enough to sustain us, to nourish us as we participate in your mission. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.